This is The Thirst Tank, presented by Trap Brewing Company. I think breweries can be quite intimidating places. Uh, you know, just the amount of stainless steel and taps and heat and noise. And when you go from a nano brewery, which is just essentially a home brew kit, and then you walk into a professional brewery, they are intimidating places. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Thirst Time, the show that takes a deep dive into the careers and journeys of some of the most influential and creative folks in the craft beer industry today. Today's guest is Daniel Tapper. Now, you may have heard of Beak, and it may have been a new thing, but actually, they have been going way longer than you might expect. Danny started homebrewing, uh, and before becoming a commercial entity as a home brewer, going up to Cuckoo Brewing, before actually beginning Beak, um, its own brick and mortar brewery in <laughs> in the height of lockdown, which is always a little bit of a struggle, but might have actually been a beneficial move as well. They make amazing beer. Danny's got a really fascinating backstory as well, where he came from and what he did before. And we talk all about it in today's episode. So I'll stop waffling on. Let's get to it. You are listening to Track Brewing Co. Presents The Thirst Time, and this is our interview with Daniel Tapper. And we start with that all-important question, what was that first beer for him? Um, I, it's, it is actually quite difficult to say because I've always been really interested in beer. Um, I come, like, my family are all beer drink, beer drink. It's a beer drinking family. Like, we never really went to restaurants. Um, so all our family meals were to pubs growing up. So I've, in the, you know, like, stone-flagged pubs in Yorkshire Dales. And so I've always really liked everything about pubs and beer and, like, the smell of real ale. And when I was... 17 I set up a real ale society with my, some of my best mates at school and so we had this like an 84 booklet and we'd just go on this bus that takes you around the Yorkshire Dales and we'd rate real ales out of 10 and like it was really nerdy it was stupid so always really been into real ale um but then moved to London for work so I used to work as a journalist um and when I was cycling back from work one day, I called into a bar and had a bottle of Colonel. And at the time, I remember tasting that and just thinking this doesn't taste like any kind of beer I've ever had before. And at that point, I didn't, even though I used to rate real ale and things like that, I didn't really have a deep understanding of where the flavours of beer came from. And so I should remember tasting Colonel and thinking, what the hell is this? It's absolutely insane. And that was at the point, I don't know if you remember, but back in the day, Colonel used to be served. They'd like pour the 90% of it and leave 10% yep. behind and you could have the shots bit. of yeah. yeast, <laughs> which today's beer drinking community will think is completely insane. Yeah, I remember uh, the yeast being like a real, uh, you know, the a specialist product like would you go for it or wouldn't you go for it yeah i mean i never went for it because yeah <laughs> I, you know, I didn't know much, i didn't know much about beer but i did know that having a shot of yeast <laughs> probably gonna not gonna be nice consequences the next yeah bit. that's amazing um, that you were that, set up basically uh, a junior camera society in uh, in the yeah. yorkshire dales yeah, there was this, there was a bus they used to put on, a hopper bus that used to take you from Ilkley, which is my hometown. Um, and it just used to drop you off all the little Yorkshire Dales villages and it was called Pride of the Dales. And so we we called our society Pride of the Ales, which was like a riff off this bus. It was so daft. I hope that if, um, if this podcast can do anything, Danny, I hope that it reinvigors <clears throat> young kids in Ilkley to get back of the, and bring that back. Yeah, we were really into <laughs> folk music and stuff as well, like listening to the Fairport Convention on the, wow. these bus journeys into the Yorkshire Dales drinking real ale and just being old man. It was quite funny. That's um, amazing. Yeah, it's almost like the Benjamin Button approach of you. It feels like you're, you're going to age backwards and now you're getting into, you know, you, you own a brewery that does like New England the IPAs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
so there is, you know, there is a lot of crossover between those beers. Um, yeah, absolutely. In some, some respects. Um, but yeah, like Colonel was definitely a turning point in, it made me realise what beer could be. Yeah. Um, obviously, I always knew beer could taste like a pint of bitter, but when I had that beer with, you know, just the hot profile and the character you got, immediately I just thought, where, where is this flavour coming from? And that's mm-hmm. when I started to read about beer and started home brewing. Um, so if we can go back into, so you're a passionate young beer drinker, real ale focused towards kind of traditional, which is craft beer. Like sometimes we forget that that yeah, is yeah, craft absolutely. beer, like absolutely craft beer. Um, but you, you know, you became a pretty successful journalist. So could you kind of take us into the trajectory, your professional trajectory before coming back into what you kind of do now? Yeah, so I I went to Leeds Uni, studied sociology, and as with everyone who studies sociology, I had no idea what I was going to do with <laughs> yeah. that, like vocationally. So uh, when I graduated, I had uh, a student, like I got to go to uni for free, which was great. It was back in the day when you could get help. Amazing. You came from certain backgrounds and blah, blah, blah. Um, so with the remainder of that student loan I had, I decided to go to um, New York for a bit and I got an internship like making documentaries for this 80 year old documentary maker called Albert no way. who was really well known in the 60s for making the Rolling Stones documentary Give Me Shelter and so he was a bit of a hero of mine and at that point I decided I really wanted to go into like something to do with current affairs or documentary making and as soon as I got back from that I like landed a job working for Guardian Films which doesn't exist anymore but essentially back in the day it was like the current affairs Mm -hmm. wing video wing of the Guardian yeah and it was during the like latter years of the Iraq war and so my job at the Guardian was essentially like all of this footage would come back from war photographers and my job was to um, like import it into um, like all the raw files, all the raw footage into computers and do like rough edits, basically, and produce these videos about the Iraq war. Oh, my days. That's was, heavy, man. Um, yeah, it was really heavy. It was, I was only like 20, 22, 23 at the time. Wow. Um, so that, it was really interesting, uh, but it was, yeah, it was really intense, as you can imagine. Um, and then when I was working there, I just started writing about my other interest, which was film at the time. So I started writing to the website about film. Um, it's, sorry, this is, must be really boring to people who don't, who no, this is, this is, <laughs> no, no, it's really cool because the whole point of this, no, it's really interesting because what I always trying to get to is this point of like what you did in your profession in many eyes and, and, and is, was a successful career, a, a path that you could probably have carried on treading. But at some point there becomes a fork in that road where you deviate into starting a brewery, which many would call insanity. Uh, in the current climate. Um, so yeah, and what really fascinated me is that you you know you went on to to write for the Guardian and you also wrote a book on on like food and where it came from and stuff, didn't you? Yeah. So the fork in the road that you like were talking about was basically I when I eventually became a freelance writer and what happens when you freelance you tend to just take whatever work you can get and I ended yeah. up getting work writing about food for various food and drink magazines and growing up I wasn't really that interested in food I was into beer but that's kind of where it ended and slowly I just started writing about all of these incredible producers around the UK and we just became very interested in uh, how food is made mm-hmm. and around about this time that was when in London a lot of the like Neil's Yard and Monmouth and Colonel in that whole Bermondsey area there was a lot of revived interest in quite simple food so beer sourdough bread coffee like this and I think a lot of that was like post-recession people didn't have a lot of money and so there became you had to like find interests that weren't very luxurious so it was like what can I do with my money that will buy me a 
an experience that doesn't cost the earth. And so people became, yeah, like I say, really interested in bread and coffee and provenance of food. And I started writing a lot, a lot about these kinds of foods. Um, And that is actually really when I became interested in, in beer. So at the same time, discovering Colonel, and then I just started thinking, instead of writing about people creating these foods, like I wish I was that person who got to actually create delicious food and that's when I decided to start homebrewing um but yeah just before that I did I did a book for the like channel four series uh food unwrapped yes and it was it was the worst freelance gig of my life um, <laughs> yeah I had to write 80,000 words in, oh my days and I, we didn't have an office or anything so I, I wrote it in Peckham library in it was like four months. It was really stressful. <laughs> oh man, that's unbelievable. So it's kind of cool though, because yeah, you're looking at this, these small production facilities. You, you, you know, you're born in the, in the Yorkshire's, you've, you've grown up around, around real ale, which again, to reference is craft, craft beer. These were small scale productions mm. in, in many respects, you know, cause I'm from near you. So there was a lot of little microbreweries and a lot of pubs that might just have a little mm. cellar that they, they did their own bruising and then put some casks on and stuff. Um, so that's reinvigorated your ideas of wanting to create something for yourself. And then, then you followed that into homebrewing. So what kind of stuff were you wanting to achieve in homebrewing? Was, was it the Colonel-esque, you know, hazy, well, hazy is probably the wrong word, but like bright. Hazy hop- at the time. Yeah, it was <laughs> hazy at the time, but like bright, hazy, uh, super flavorful beers or were we kind of moving back into your traditional um upbringing uh no it was definitely trying to recreate kernel beers and so i knew evan quite well at that point because i did a few uh like volunteer shifts for kernel amazing just to see if it was like something that interested me and i went in and worked with it was when toby who has been heading up the mix firm um uh, yeah, they, uh, he was head brewer at the time, or lead brewer, and Evan was head brewer. So I got to work with those guys for a bit and just completely fell in love with everything about breweries, like the smell, like the steam, the smell of all the hops, and totally fell in love with it. And Evan was a total gentleman, and mm-hmm. I would ask him a million questions by email all the time about home brewing. <laughs> you know, from water chemistry to dry hopping rates. Um, this is when Colonel would dry up and their dry hopping rate was probably like seven grams per litre. And, <laughs> and it tasted, yeah, and it felt like, the, yeah, it felt like the most, those Colonel beers, man, Citra IPA, I remember drinking that for the first time and just being like, yeah, oh my days, this, this is, is insane. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I used to go and buy all my bottles and cardboard boxes from Evan and then carry them on the bus uh, take them on a bus back up to Hackney and then do home brews. Um, and as soon as I started home brewing, I just absolutely fell in love with it straight away. I just love everything about it, love the history of it, yeah, the process, everything. Did you love um, what you were creating though? <laughs> what was the beer like that you were actually producing at that time? It was very, oh, I mean, obviously just not good. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, but, but, you know, like, I don't know if, if you've homebrewed before, Stefan, or not, but you know what, feeling... I, I've never homebrewed, but the idea of creating something from nothing is an amazing feeling. It's amazing. Yeah. It's like putting a, it's the same feeling you get from putting any, a meal you're really proud of on the kitchen yeah. table for friends and nothing quite beats that feeling when you pop off the cap and you hear the fizz and it's just like alchemy because this flat, very bitter-tasting thing that you put into bottle three weeks ago suddenly has turned into beer. And that the first time that happens is such a rush. It's amazing. I guess with beer as well, it must be so exciting, you know, to hand the bottle over to a friend and just be like, yeah, I, yeah. I brewed this. Um, were you Were you taking anything back to Evan to kind of get his... Uh, get his uh, all-knowing senses on it. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) I think he was very gentlemanly and 
generous in yeah. his like, appraisals. <laughs> um, but you've got you've got the bug now, so this is this is something yeah. that's in you that you can't um, you can't like let go of. Um, yeah. So from oh. there, sorry. Go, from from there, can uh, you kind of move any where where was it going forward from there? So immediately having this awful hubris of a new home brewer, I thought I, I can set up a brewery. I, I could get this into my favorite restaurant. And that restaurant was actually on my street in Hackney and it was called Braun. A really amazing place. Uh, a little bit in the same vein as St. John. So yeah. a lot of meat, like head to toe, eat to. And I remember taking in this bottle with a handmade label just saying, I've got a brewery at the end of the street, um, a nano brewery. If you could, do you think you could sell a beer? <laughs> and the bar manager said, sure, let's, let's open it now with the team. Oh, my see, so I think, uh, and he cracked some of the homebrew open with the team. And to be fair, like, it was probably shit, but it was different to what yeah. was being made at the time beyond like some small micro breweries. And he said, oh yeah, this is, quite nice um can i come and see the brewery this week um and i said well strictly speaking it's not a brewery it's more of a home <laughs> kit uh and he said have you got have you got health and safety and food standards certificates and no what's what's that um and so that quite quickly put an end to oh, man. You know, my idea that I, I was running a brewery um, so anyway, after that, I just ended up homebrewing for quite a few years. Um, and once I'd learned how to homebrew properly, I then decided to buy Nano Brewery, which was essentially a 100-litre kit mm-hmm. made by ES Fabrications. And I had I set that up back home in Yorkshire. Sounds mad, but I had a free space in the corner of a warehouse there. So rather than having to pay someone in London to rent a space, I put it there and I did get all the right certification and essentially turned that into a commercial brewery that would only make, you know, three kegs at a time or a keg and like eight cases of a bottle of beer. And I would go up, I'd drive up to, it was in a little town called Silsden, which is like west, northwest of Ilkley. I'd go up, brew, come back down, like 10 days later, go back up and like check on the fermentations package, then drive into Leeds and start distributing it around bottle shops there. Amazing. So there was a restaurant called The Reliance, which is one of my favourite restaurants. And yeah. that's in Leeds. They were the first people to take a punt. And is this Beak. is this Beak at this point? It's this like, is Beak. Yeah. Right? Amazing. Yeah with totally different labels, all just like hand printed. Um, so cool. Yeah, it was really hard work and probably lost a lot of money doing it, but it was just really good fun uh, making loads of very, very strange beers that we most commercial breweries would never get to sell that easily. Um, so I feel like I remember seeing like the occasional just like keg clip of Beak. Yeah. But it was... So just for reference here, you know, at the start, I kind of talked about the fact that Beak's been going way longer than people mm. will actually realise because yeah, you're yeah. doing this. You were on a 100 litre kit. It's funny, exactly. I, I spoke to um, Ross recently at Flock, who mm. did exactly the kind of same same kind of thing, but was really, he came at a different time. But this was, what kind of year was this? 2017-ish? Or? like, yeah, something like that. It's probably like six or seven years ago. Yeah. So, so it wasn't still really, a lot of... it, yeah, even though it was a brewery, it was more of a homebrew project yeah. where I could got to sell some of it essentially. Um, and then I quickly realized like the ec- the financials of that just didn't work out. So then <laughs> I decided... Commuting, commuting from London to Leeds yeah. to brew 100 <laughs> litres, which is like possibly two kegs and a case of cans or a case of bottles or whatever. Yeah, I guess the financial yeah. uh, aspects of that don't really add up. No, but I got invited to IMBC, weirdly, when I was still running it as an animal. Oh, no way. And that just, 
was a real turning point for me because I got to meet loads of other people in the industry and also potential customers. And it was like, I got more, a lot more interest in, in the brewery by just doing that one festival. And at that point I decided to start looking into uh, nomadic brewing. Yeah. Um, and I sort of knew uh, Christian from North Bruco. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's obviously just really lovely. And him and Seb let me brew my first nomadic uh, a beer on their kit when they just started out. It's hard to imagine that North Bruco used to have spare capacity. I know. Um, <laughs> can you can you take yeah. just just a couple of things that I want to reference there, which is how cool was it? Like IMBC's just come back, and you guys had a you and Verdant shared a whole room. And just to think of that journey from you turning up there, brewing on your nano kit, to like turning up there now as an established brewery, must have been a real cool kind of moment for you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and that is one thing I always like convey to the rest of the beach team is because like once you stop like becoming excited about things like that or fanboying about being in conversation with people from breweries that you respect mm-hmm. once you lose that excitement you've there's probably no point of being in in craft beer at all because exactly. that's what it's all about it's all about just getting excited about things and so yeah i always say, say you know to the team don't take don't be complacent and don't take these things for granted because the amount of work and effort that has gone into getting to this point where we can share a room with a brewery that we really look up to mm-hmm. and also just be serving beer in this space with amazing customers, load all the, like some of the best breweries in the UK. And for me, like that excitement has never gone anywhere. Yeah. So even the fact, you know, doing this, having this conversation with, with you guys is like a massive privilege. And I think you just can't forget how important those things are. Um, yeah. I think you have yeah. to, if, if you're not coming into work, I, I've said it again a few times, just like, I have to come in and be excited. And if I lose excitement, then it's, yeah. it's you're done. Like, what's the point? Yeah, I yeah. mean, You can't be excited, like, 100% of the time, but I think, you know, that's just tiring. But the, <laughs> the, the, but the big things like IMBC, like, that's why our... Our motto at Beat Brewery sounds cheesy is life affirming ales. And mm-hmm. we've like some people um have said to us on social media, oh, being a nurse is life affirming, saving lives is life affirming, beer can never be, it's not life affirming. And I would completely disagree with that because I think food and drink can be incredibly life affirming. Absolutely. You ask anyone in Italy if food can be life affirming, they'll they'll probably say yes, it definitely can be. And I think that's kind of happening in our country as well. But the base the base those experiences like IMBC are genuinely life affirming and you come away from them just vibing off how excited other people are about your beer and absolutely it just feeds that that interest. I think the other side of it as well is that you've got the consumer that's coming, which is just, is life affirming. But then it's the people that work in the breweries that you respect. You know, like one of the main things that I loved about like IMBC coming back this year was just, just getting to see everyone there again. And just, you know, after COVID, you know, spending time Mm -hmm. with the people that you, and the reason I started this podcast is because these people are really interesting, you know, like your journey is really interesting and, and it spans out from beer, but it comes back into beer. And that's mm. the bit that like keeps driving me, you know, like people are doing and, and, and what breweries are kind of starting to become is something bigger than beer. You know, I'd say yeah, you know, it's definitely. like more about like experiences and food and drink and really trying to engage with that culture on a warm, yeah. a wider, wider basis. But anyway, I'm waffling. No, no, but no, it, it's bring... a good point because, like, also, you know, beer isn't really about beer, it's about people. Yeah. And beer is, like, a conduit. It's, like, it helps you to have a nice time with other people, but it really... And for us, like, we've always had interests that go well beyond beer, so I've never really understood that mentality of subsets of people that only uh really are interested in their yeah. passion so i yeah 
like there are, I think traditionally there are quite a lot of people in the beer world who were really interested in beer, but there were no other like interests or inspirations coming through. And I think the beer world's in quite a good place at the moment where if you talk to someone, let's say IMBC, about beer, actually you'll probably discover they have interest in film, in books, in music, yeah. fashion. And the beer is just like, it's a nice starting point, but there's a lot more to talk about. Exactly. And that's, yeah, it, it is a, that's what it's an amazing vessel for. And I guess the other thing is that it introduces you to other businesses. And when you start just seeing passion in any, any frame of reference, I think that's mm. exciting, an exciting place or an exciting thing to talk about, whether it's someone that's just a sourdough producer or a coffee roaster, and you mm. see that they're really passionate about every part of that process. And that's when you're just surrounded by all of these people who are, share that similar passion of beer, but then you can span out. It's just an amazing place to be. And um, yeah, yeah, and it's so cool that you were there, like knowing your journey now and knowing that you were there as a little nano brewer <laughs> and, and, and have gone on to, yeah, to be next to Verdant in the, in the pineapple room is really, really yeah, cool. Yeah, that was but, an honour, for sure. But let's, uh, let's skip back to that first brew with, um, with North then. So you've been nano-brewing <clears throat> a lot different. Like, scale doesn't necessarily just mean like, oh, this is five times as big, I just need to times this by five. There's a lot of variables yeah. in it, and it must have been really nerve-wracking to go, right, oh, my God, I'm going to produce however many thousand litres of beer here. I've never done anything like this. Yeah, I think breweries can be quite intimidating places. Uh, you know, just the amount of stainless steel and taps and heat and noise. And when you go from a nano brewery, which is just essentially a home brew kit, and then you walk into a professional brewery, they are intimidating places. But Seb, who's the head brewer north, is just really, he's very welcoming and mm-hmm. just talks you through the processes um but also you know he i sort of handed him i would hand him my recipes and then he would suit them for that kit so he you know like he has to take credit for that for sure um and it was the same after north i did um a bit at a few other breweries around the north as well um and it was the same process really a lot of it is you work very closely with the home with the head brewer of that brewery who then tweaks your recipes to to fit their kit yeah because like you say it's not like a one size fits all approach at all Mm -hmm. like every single brewery is different but yeah that first beer i did at north Brewco was an export style seven percent export style which i launched mid-summer because i had no idea about (laughs) how sales worked (laughs) Um, and we had a launch party at a bottle shop called it was called tall boys in Leeds. don't know if you remember that yeah 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 and that was fun uh dave kerr was there from he was working at northern monk at the time and it was just really not it was just a great way to meet a lot of the kind of Leeds craft beer people matt goretzky who uh, run Zapato. Um, so yeah, it was just a really exciting time when the whole craft beer thing hadn't really fully kicked kicked off properly. You know, yeah. Northern Monk were in their sort of second year or something like that. So it was a really close knit community of people. Um, and so I think when I did that first brew in with North Bruco, it was a great opportunity just to really like embed myself in that Leeds beer scene even though I was living in London um but yeah like you say you end up with a hell of a lot of beer when you're brewing on a 15 barrel kit (laughs) yeah I I guess because when you're brewing on that small scale and you sell it out but selling it out means like two or three accounts and then you're like oh yeah everyone wants my beer I can I could sell this out and it's like 2,000 litres Mm. of beer is a whole different 2,000 litres of export stout as your first beer is quite (laughs) it's quite in summer yeah, it's uh, challenging, I imagine. So it took me a long time to sell a batch of beer. In fact, it was good that it was a stout because there was no hops to like fade or anything like that. Um, uh, so, yeah, that was good. Oh, we, so we put some of that beer into a another ridiculous idea I had was when I was driving up from London, I thought, why don't I just go to a vineyard in Kent and go and get a red wine barrel from an English... Uh, red wine producer and I'll drive that up to Leeds and when we package this export style I'll put I'll fill this red wine barrel with 
the export style. And then, uh, then we'll just age it for ages and I'll be able to make this delicious beer. So I got the, the red wine barrel, drove it up to Leeds to do the packaging. It nearly fell out of the back of the van at one point, like the doors swung open on the motorway. It was terrifying. And then filled the red wine barrel and then said, said, oh, we don't have space for this at North Bruco. So I stupidly hadn't really thought about where I was going to store it. Unfortunately, Northern Monk stepped in and Russ and Brian just said, yeah, you can put it in our cold store. That's fine. And so I just left it in my cold store for about a year and then uh, hand bottled that about a year later. So, and I think there are bottles of this barrel aged export style still kicking around, which wow. is really the first beak beer. That's um, amazing. And sometimes I get messages on Twitter saying, oh, I just found this at the back of the cupboard. What um, does it take? Was it good? Did it come out well? It was really, it was really grapey and vinous to start with, and just a bit one-dimensional. But yeah. now it's starting to come into its own. Seven years later, that's amazing. I think there might be a bit of Brett in there and all sorts. Well, um, what I love about that is just when you're on that scale and kind of really excited as well. You're allowed to dream a little bit, you know, before you get into the like bricks and mortar of what a brewery is. You you know, these are just ideas. It's like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. And one barrel, that's kind of manageable. And you can you can put it into yeah. reality. And then just in that process, it sounds like you probably learned about three or four lessons of just like, actually, mm. this isn't just, I can't just put a barrel somewhere in someone's brewery if they don't have space. And yeah. I need to work it's this out. Stupid. So if we were to distill um, your kind of home brewing, contract brewing down, what were the lessons that you really took from that that you brought forward into the realisation of starting a bricks and mortar brewery? Uh, number one, delegation. Um, I've always been a one-man band, so whether I was freelance, doing freelance journalism or running the brewery, it was always just me doing absolutely everything. And I think as soon as you go into professional brewery, you realise that there are people who can do things better than you can do them. And so seeing someone like Seb or Brian from Northern Monk Brewing, you realise that they know what they're doing a hell of a lot better than I ever will. And it's kind of knowing what your strengths are. And so when I was thinking, like planning, um, setting the bricks and mortar version of of, uh, Beak Up, there was a realisation where I just had to accept that I wasn't going to be a head brewer. Yeah. Like that isn't my strength. Uh, Was that that a hard realization or was that just, just like, actually this isn't what I'm about? Not really. I think I've, I'd never, I think deep down never really saw myself as a head brewer. Cause there's so much more to running a brewery than the beer. And obviously the beer is the number one most important thing, but there are millions of other things that you have to think about. And I think I'm a bit of a generalist. I'm not, I don't think too scientifically. I don't have mm-hmm. that like scientific, logical engineering brain that someone like Robin, our head brewer has, who was born to be a head brewer. Um, and I think, yeah. So one lesson I've learned is to sort of figure out what your strengths are and be honest with yourself and then don't be afraid to delegate responsibilities to other people who are better than you at that job. Um, also, just producing beers that people want, as opposed to... <laughs> I, after, after I did the export style, the next beer I did was at Brass Castle. Do you know Brass Castle yeah, in yeah, Malton? Yeah. And it was... I brewed a Lapsang Souchong oh tea, days. so smoked tea and juniper red ale oh my on a 15-barrel kit because uh, I just thought, oh, that flavour um, flavor profile is really interesting and I'd done it as a home brewer and I thought, people are just going to love this beer. Slowest selling beer, I think, in the history of the UK. I probably had kegs for three years. Oh, my <laughs> days. Um, so yeah, learning to create beers that people want to drink and not be too big headed about it. Mm-hmm. Cause I think traditionally there's brewers out there who think that the public should like what I brew. And if they don't, there's something wrong with them. 
And so we have a completely different ethos of beak these days, which is we make beer that people want to drink. Mm-hmm. But and we have we have our passion projects like uh, the beers that we make just for ourselves. So things like Bamper Best Bitter or our mixed firm beers, uh, some of the more unusual lagers we produce them because we actually just love to drink them. But at the end of the day, there has to be a realization that most people who follow beat want to drink and that a juicy bale ale or an IPA. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think they're the two things I, I learned delegation, realizing what people want to drink. You are listening to Track Brinko Presents the First Time, and this is our interview with Daniel Tapper. Coming forward then, so let's go to Beak 2.0. So for that period of time, probably not many people were even aware as, uh, of Beak as a, as a brewery, you know, like you, yeah. you've got little bits of community, especially in Leeds and the North and things. Mm. But setting up your own thing. So, you know, I have so much respect for anyone that takes that step out into the dark in, in, in any business, but like a brewery, you have to sink some, some money in and you have to find a location. Mm-hmm. Um, can, you t- can you take us to that point of like, right, you feel like you found the location of B, what's, what's the next steps that you needed to, to take to make this a reality? And also it's kind yes. of crazy because the beers that you produced... <laughs> hadn't necessarily given you the um the knowledge mm-hmm. that like the finances are there to, to I, I mean maybe it's just like cancelled out i'm not going to use lapsang sushong in a, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah so coming up to that beak 2.0 what was what was the decisions that you had to make and and to to really get it going so we moved to lewis is a little town 10 minutes north of brighton um, and we moved here about five or six years ago. Um, me and my wife were really, um, we, I absolutely love London, but we were just getting to the point of we needed to be out in the countryside. We're both from, Thea's from rural Italy and I'm obviously from the Dales and we just wanted to be in a place that felt like those spaces to us. We could go hiking and camping, and but not too far from London, which is where Thea has a job. Um, so we, I think we came down for bonfire to Lewis. So that's the really big thing in Lewis. It's bigger than Christmas. It's what the whole community builds up to every year. Um, like now outside, they're already building all the, the bonfires. Crazy. all started. And it's, it's a year round activity. And so we came down for, for bonfire, absolutely fell in love with the town. It's just such a, an unusual place, like really creative, lots of independent businesses. And we decided to move here. Once we'd moved here, I started thinking seriously about setting up the brewery. And I just thought, you know, instead of doing it in Brighton, why don't we just do it in Lewis? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter where you do it. Like people, if you make good beer, people will hopefully serve and take notice. It doesn't yeah. necessarily have to be in a city. So um, at that point, I started putting together a business plan and uh, it took me about a year to find enough investment. Um, I did it on a bit of a shoestring compared to a lot of new breweries. So we've got a Malrex kit uh, built in Derbyshire. So it's not like steam jacketed. Um, so yeah, fairly straightforward kit, small space. We're in a two and a half thousand square foot unit, which sounds like a lot, but it's absolutely tiny. Yeah. Um, and then I got chatting with a local brewer, Robin uh, Foreman. He, um, he was working at Burning Sky at the time as lead brewer under Mark Tranter. And we just hit it off. I told him uh, what I was planning and Robin basically got on board and wanted to come and join. Amazing. Um, so that, that was a massive stroke of luck because I hadn't even really thought about who was going to be the head brewer. It was very yeah, typical. So it's very um, an organic situation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the great thing about Robin is he is from, like, everyone knows Burning Sky's reputation is about excellence, right? They 
they don't jump on fads. It's, yeah. It is about balance, essentially, and quality. And so, whereas my background was almost the antithesis to that, it was no, no quality and no balance. No, I'm only joking. It was more about, like, let's get creative with flavours and see what works. And so me and Robin, like, as soon as we started working together, there was sort of my influence pushing us towards more kind of modern IPAs, hop forward beers. And then Robin sort of pulling things back and taking apart the recipes and rebuilding them and making them more balanced and nuanced. And I think that probably our, the way we work, I think our beers is probably like a product of those polar opposite ways of working, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, So yeah, it took about a year to, to get it together, get all the contracts signed and then me and Robin started it in August 2020 is when we started brewing. And so we, two weeks before we were about to start brewing, Boris Johnson came on the TV and said he was closing every pub in the UK. Oh, man. Which was, I just remember burying my hand, my, my face in my hands in front of the TV thinking this, it was almost funny. Yeah. It was I mean, when could that ever happen? Like, it's just an insane thing to just say, like, the whole of the hospitality uh, sector is closing down. Yeah, I mean, you guys, you know, like every brewery had to go through that. Yeah. And, I mean, it must in a way have been more terrifying for you guys because you already had your established, like, everything you need to to run as a business. So, you, you know. Yeah, it was scary. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it was unpredictable. But so you launch in lockdown, which mm. is just a crazy, crazy, crazy time. But there's something that you had that felt like, I remember kind of seeing it come and I was like, man, this feels like a really well thought out brand, like a really well thought out project. Um the way that the design was done, the aesthetic of the beers, the way that that looked, the way that the photography was done. How conscious were you of that at the start? Um, I'm oh, I'm such a pedant, Stefan, honestly. Like, I'm awful, as anyone will say. But it's just like, I, it is all about the details with yeah. things like outside of beer. It's just, for me... For me, just as in the like, what is just as interesting as the beer is the branding and the way it looks and the way you present it to the world. And you know, like we were talking the other day about how on untapped ratings, draft beer always rates lower than cans. Gen- mm-hmm. Well, generally speaking, and from like my theory is that basically it's all down to the experience of looking at the can and take like that label completely changes the way you experience the beer. I was thinking, just sorry to interrupt there, but it's just funny because, you know, we have staff cans Mm. and it's very weird taking an unlabeled can home, even though you know the beer. I feel like it's not the same experience. If anyone wants to do this experiment, just take the label off your beer, Mm. put it in the fridge, take it out one day and just pour it. And it's going to, it changes the way that you you perceive that. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. And so... That was one of the things that was, I think during lockdown, social media became even more important to people because everyone's locked in their homes, didn't have anything to do, ordering online. And I think in a way that was quite fortunate for us. And social media, like especially Instagram, was just something that I think lends itself really well to the kind of beers we were making. Um, and yeah, I think the labels felt a little bit different in that they were, they were just quite simple uh, like a lot of white and just J covers, simple illustrations. Um, so, yeah, I think I've lost my train of thought. But, yeah, I think they, yeah, the, the way beer looks in the can is really important to us. And I think we gave the impression that we had lots of money behind us and we, we were well thought out. But as anyone who's been down to our brewery will see, it's just like a complete mess and we're just bursting at the seams. But fortunately you can give that impression sometimes. 
Yeah, well, make that's it, it. Make it. Well, exactly, and you know, <laughs> I feel like we shared we shared a very similar journey. I guess we're we're a little bit further down the road, but what I really love about your journey as well is the kind of team members that you start accruing along the way, and that mm. feeling of kind of connectedness between you all, just wanting to to see this little thing run. You know, this this idea that you've all had and that you're all really passionate about. You want to take yeah. it to that next step, and and then obviously. All, everyone just had eyes on their phones during lockdown. So it was kind of maybe a blessing in disguise to really build a brand mm. out and, and, and gain intrigue. But the other part of yours is that you did start a tap room as well. That was something that was quite central to what you wanted to do. Yeah, definitely. And I'm really glad we did. Like I would say that to anyone who's thinking of setting up a brewery is just how important the tap room is in terms of cash flow. Mm. Um, but also just... Yeah, cash flow number one, but also it's just a really good way of being able to meet local people and become a part of a local community and just see people enjoying your, enjoying your beer. Because um, I've spoken to people who run quite successful breweries but who don't have tap rooms, and they always say the same thing, which is they just wish they'd had a tap room from day one. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably the future. Um is, you know, like regional craft breweries with really good tap rooms. Um, I think it has to know, be. You guys well. know that. And yeah. Here and- yeah. I guess with the, you know, it's only made more apparent the more squeezes you get from power or produce or all these things. It's like you need to have something that's kind of in your own hands. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And like you say, like you mentioned before as well, the, the team is so important as well like if you can land if you can get a team together of people who are as passionate about the brewery as you are like it's you're laughing and yeah. it's just about like nurturing that talent and keeping people excited about what you're doing like so our operations manager Kat for example she joined as a like she was working behind the bar during lockdown and then we had to close the bar. I like, remember they like, had to close, everything had oh, yeah. to close eventually yeah. and it just went completely online. And at that point, the web shop orders started to go up and we just said to Kat, do you want to come and do all the web shop orders? And slowly she just totally just took it upon herself to do more and more and more. And before I knew it, she was just doing all of the sales. <laughs> just amazing. <laughs> like, and so she's created this job as operations manager and now robin's got you know a team of three brewers underneath him and it's just been really exciting to see these people join the team and actually just grow their roles as well yeah um as the business has grown as well yeah i mean i see a lot of myself in cat because it was just like you just get thrown into this small you know with with someone who just has a dream and they're they're trying to fill it and you're just like i'm gonna just do everything I can to carry, like push this forward as well. She's awesome. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So if we go from like contracting to, to now owning a brewery and running a brewery, which is, you know, still relatively new, just a couple of years kind of old Mm. now, what are the lessons, you know, that you've learned from that process? Oh, um, hmm. I, poor, I don't know. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the lessons, uh, biggest lessons. Um, I mean, the, the things I mentioned before still apply. So, 100% trying to delegate, which I, I'm, I've got worse at. Like today, like this morning, the first thing I was doing was, was I was on the phone to the tight room manager talking about festoon lighting for the tight room and. Or like, you know, things that just I sh- that I shouldn't really be bothering about. Yeah. <laughs> I can't help but just be really annoying and get involved in. Yeah. Because, yeah, so I, I still need to get better at that, um, delegating. Um, I don't know what do you think about this? Well, it's interesting, you know, because Ross uh, from Flock, he said that he spoke to you and you gave him like, some really good advice that he carried forward, which was just focus on the brand and focus on the beer. And that's, that's it. 
Oh, did like, I? Yeah. I can't believe so you, you you've got to some, what I say. I was going to say, you've got some wisdom somewhere, Danny, that just comes from... Uh, he, shouldn't, <laughs> he shouldn't listen to a word. <laughs> so, no, actually, that is that... No, you're absolutely right. I think the, the beer... So one thing I've never, never taken my eye off the ball with is the beer, and Robin will testify to that. I'm always, like, tasting everything. And, yeah. yes, I'm not a head brewer. I'm not trained as a brewer, but I'm, I know about beer, and I know what tastes good and what kind of beer we should be creating. So the beer has to come first, like never take your eye off the ball in terms of branding and mm-hmm. social media. Um, like just make friends in the industry is so important as well. As I say, it's not just about beer, it's about people. And yeah, just before I set up the brewery, one of the things I did, and I think this was to do with my background as a journalist is I spent a year traveling around the UK with a dictaphone interviewing the owners of breweries. Oh, no way. That's a curveball. You just throw that at me. Yeah. So I literally, I got in my car and drove around the UK and sat down around the table and recorded dozens of interviews from like villages in Deptford to Russ and Northern Monk. Wow. Everywhere. Did they ever emerge? Um, oh, was this well, just private I, for you own, to learn? For me, yeah. And wow. I had this list of questions. I just saw it really logically. Like, this is going to sound really boring, but what what are your sales splits? Yeah. What's your turnover? What's your GP? Uh, really just nuts and bolts, things like that. And at the end of it, I wrote it all up and I have this document on my computer called Words of Wisdom. And it's basically a collection of all the answers from different breweries. And so when it came to planning Beak, I was like, well, these are the parameters that I can work within. And I'm either going to be at the bottom end of this scale or maybe hopefully one day near the top. And that is basically how I create my business model. And that's still sort of what I base our targets on. And that is to me, so that's cool. just like... It's so nerdy, but it's, it is nuts and bolts. That, oh, that is actually one more bit of wisdom I would have. Is um, So I always talk to Kat about, I call it nectar. And it's um, when you're, there are these occasions where we're, let's say, in a, a timber yard trying to hack out a piece of wood from a pile of wood because we need it for something we're doing at the tap room because we're building a blackboard or something. And there could be a part of you that thinks, I'm too good for this. I shouldn't be having to do this. I should be I should be in Yakima Valley, like, choosing hops. Um, I shouldn't be doing this. But actually, those moments are, I always call them the nectar of, like, running a small business. And that is actually where you make a difference mm-hmm. as a business. Like, you think it's a waste of time at that, that very moment because it can be really hard work. You know, in the rain, it's all, like, hard work, depressing, not very exciting work, but actually that is where you make a small business work. It's like these little nuts and bolts moments. Um, yeah. Oh, mate, that was amazing. To both of those things are raised. I love that you hadn't even considered either of those points and then, oh yeah, I just yeah. travelled around the, the country for a year <laughs> interviewing every brewer from the people I respected. Amazing. That's all the, you know, that's the business brewing Bible right there. You could probably publish it. Okay, Danny. So this is a question that it's been really cool to go over the, this journey with you, um, and learn all these things about Beak. Um, I'm a huge fan of the brewery and the people behind it as well. You guys do such an awesome job. Um, I know there's a few areas. Thanks very much. I know there's a few areas that you guys have looked into as well with regards to agriculture and cultivating your own kind of wheat and stuff. But if we could span out five years forward, what does Beak look like? What would you like it to look like? Um, And what does the beer scene look like and would you like it to look like? Um, I think, well, we definitely want to continue, we want to continue growing. We're all quite ambitious at Beak. Like, obviously, we're not looking to become a macro brewery. We're looking to become a sustainable, long-term regional business. And in order to do that, we need to 
we do need to grow a bit. We need to have more space. We need to have a dedicated tap room and retail space instead of a brewery that we convert into a tap room every Friday. So that's really important. So in terms of capacity and space, we definitely need to grow. Uh, how much we grow is entirely dependent on the market. Obviously, we're about we're in the midst of a cost of living crisis. Uh, inflation is going up. Interest rates are going up. So it, you know it is difficult to say what that will look like, but certainly we need to increase our space and our capacity. Uh, we want to push our mixed firm project a little bit more. Again, like because of space constraints, we obviously mixed firm beers require a lot of space. Um, and at the moment, we can't really push that as much as we'd like to. So that's something we'd like to grow more. Um, yeah, just so we have a field at the moment just outside Lewis in a village called Iford, which is where we grow uh, mixed heritage grain uh, cultivated by um, a grain expert called John Letts. So we want to do more of that moving forward. Um in terms of the kind of beers we'll be making in five years, I honestly don't see I, the IPA and pale ale situation changing that much. Mm-hmm. You know, I think going back to this idea of, you know, that first time you had sourdough bread compared to like Warburton's, there's no going back, is there? After no. that, you know, it's like, it's just, it's a completely different beast. And yeah, I think it's here to stay. Um, so I think like, yeah, I, hop forward IPAs and pails are going to continue to be our bread and butter. But within that, I'd like to continue creating a mixture of different styles. And one of the things that, I, that a lot of people say to us is that they appreciate that we do traditional porters, we do lagers, we do best bitters. And I think, and, you know, we just about to release a Baltic porter. So I think you can mix up these progressive hop forward beers with traditional styles. And I don't know about you, but I get, I get bored of drinking hoppy beers all of the time. So, yeah, like a traditional, we've just done a, you know, straight up porter. And when it's like yeah. the nights are drawing in, it's just the, per- it's just so nice to drink something. Yeah, like it's that. all that. Yeah. yeah, I'll send I'll send you a mini cask down. I think I think you might enjoy that one. Yeah, that's oh, yeah. I did see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be amazing. Um, I yeah, I always call those beers like statements of intent, like those beers, because they show that you're not just there to create what people want or just just to create beers that generate money. Actually, they're the beers that really showcase the group talent and showcase the the passion of the people who work at that brewery for beer so yeah we've just done a Baltic Porter and it, I would say it's the beer we're all most excited about at the brewery amazing um so yeah I'd like to yeah continue doing modern hot forward beers but like punctuating them with with classic classic styles and just grow a little bit I guess that's the plan and how do you see, you know, the, the do you look outward much at the beer scene and the, the progressiveness of that? Or are you kind of quite focused on on Beak as a brand and as a brewery and not really looking too far out um, into the into the, um, into the main, mainstream culture, you could say? Yeah, I mean, well, do you mean in terms of like because of, I guess the market is... Some people might say it's really saturated. Yeah. Actually, one of these interviews I did when I was traveling around the UK, I won't say who it was, but when I remember he was the founder of a very successful craft brewery. And I remember saying to him, don't you worry about the market becoming over oversaturated? And he said, I only compete with 10 breweries in the UK. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, oh, that sounded really like corporate and mm-hmm. even just using the word like compete and things like that but I actually had a really good point and I think if you start stressing out about the competitiveness of the craft beer world you're sort of looking at it the wrong way yeah it, how I see it is we are working alongside let's say 20 to 25 breweries who are doing similar things to us and for me that is a strength that you're working alongside those breweries. So I think if you start looking at it negatively, like as though the craft beer world owes you something, like mm-hmm. it doesn't owe you anything. If you want to set, if you want to set up a craft 
beer like brewery like don't expect it to succeed like it doesn't why should it succeed yeah there's it literally owes you nothing um you just have to go and do your thing to the best of your ability and if people like it then they'll get behind it i think you made a i think you made a really important point of that idea of you know that a brewery is not just based around what you want to drink but like the Mm. the, there's a little bit of listening and there's a little bit of pushing as well you know like it's a negotiation of your tastes with what's doing well and and you know if you just put (laughs) the beers that you want to drink out all the time it might be successful because they might be the beers that Mm. pick up but I think the element of listening is really important yeah um so if we were to kind of it's so cool to think of that journey of you trying that beer at Colonel in a tap room with Evan, just being totally lost to the steam and the metal and all of the things that come with that. Do you ever just like look back and just be like, wow, here I am. Like I'm the yeah. owner of Beak. I've, I've got like a physical, <laughs> I've, I've got a physical brewery. I'm producing beers I'm proud of. Did you always think it would get to this place or... No. Is it almost like not. a happy accident? Total happy accident. Amazing. Yeah, absolute happy accident. And like I say, it's, for me, I'm just really proud of all the people that work at the brewery and to see those guys, like what they're achieving. And also on a like nerdy fanboy basis, just getting to hang out with people who I consider heroes of the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still like, even when I see Evan back in London, and have a drink with him I'm still really excited to be having a drink with him or Mark Tranter or you know it's like uh, yeah and like I say like I said before once you lose that then if you don't have that then maybe it's not for you um yeah okay so final question Danny thanks so much for 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 doing this mate it's been really cool no, thank to, you to, to go over the, yeah, it's, been, it's been really cool to go over the beak journey and, and it's every bit as ups and downs as I thought it would be but if we're going okay so it's it's not the like happiest uh, end question but it's I feel like it's an important one which is um you're in a bar they can produce any beer ever made or they could produce something that's never been made in an instant there's a little flash on the tv on the corner that just says there's a comet about to hit in an hour and the barman comes up and he slaps the bar and he goes what are you drinking uh what beer would it be for you um it would be old peculiar from the wood amazing have you had that before i've had it in white locks yeah, they've got it in White Locks. They serve it in White Locks, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I just think it's, I, I honestly think it's a masterpiece. Uh, just, I think, and Thiexen's Best Bitter, I think that's a masterpiece as well. They're just, the amount of flavour you can get in these beers, just incredible. So, yeah, Old Peculiar is usually quite, can be quite cloying and sweet if you have it just straight up on cask and even from the bottle i think it's quite often the case when you have uh traditional english styles in the bottle i personally find them quite over carbonated they're just mm-hmm. not the same as when you have them on gas but old peculiar from the wood is an entirely different beast um and there's a pub in uh called the craven arms in in a little hamlet called apple tree Wick in the yorkshire dales and they serve it from the wood there. And I don't know what they do. I Maybe they just never clean the barrels, but it has this like red wine, vinous-y kind of acidity to it that cuts through all the clag and just this real earthy complexity. And it's, it's just a masterpiece. So I'd say if you can find that beer, have it. Well, I... I have been meaning to go to that pub as well. I've never been, but I know it's in many people who ever go there's like top five pubs in the in the world. It's supposed to be beautiful. Yeah. It's um, amazing. <laughs> Austin, I, mean, I love the fact that that's going right back to that 17-year-old going on his ale trails or whatever around around the Dales. Um that's the beer that you'd choose. Um thanks so much for doing this, mate. I really appreciate Thank you. it. Thank you. Thanks so much, Stefan. Really and, appreciate it. And carry on doing the amazing work you guys are doing. And and big thanks love so to the, much. Big love to the Beak team. Thanks a million.
And uh, we didn't get one dog bark either, so thanks to the post. I know, all baby cry. All baby cry. (laughs) Right, dude. Danny, much love, dude. Thanks so much, man. another episode done a massive massive thanks to Danny for doing that I hope you enjoyed that one what an interesting journey a man who was passionate about cask beer from the age of 17 that's that's a new one I mean I absolutely love it and as a as a fellow Yorkshireman I can thoroughly get on board with that a massive thanks to Tom Couch for producing this episode as always if you'd like to share or review it's always appreciated and we will crack on with more episodes So, thanks again. We'll be back with another episode very soon. But for now, stay thirsty.